0: Good day. Welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo. And today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Mr. Bruce Rydell. Mr. Rydell is a senior fellow and director of the Brookings Institute Intelligence Project. He has served for more than 30 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, serving on the National Security Council staff, and was Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, responsible for Near Eastern and Middle Eastern affairs. Today we are speaking about Beirut, 1958, How America's War in the Middle East Began, uh, published by Brookings Press. Welcome, Mr. Rydell.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, Mr. Rydell, what is, in essence, the thesis of your book? Well, this book goes
1: back to the very first American combat mission in the Middle East. It was called Operation Blue Bat, and it was intervention in the Lebanese Civil War in July of 1958. Before then, the United States had never carried out a combat mission in the Middle East. We had built bases in the Middle East, but we never used them in combat. Since then, of course, we've engaged in war after war after war, what many now call the endless wars. So I wanted to go back and see how did it begin. And the basic thesis of the book is that it began because the Eisenhower administration panicked. It thought the entire Middle East was about to fall into the hands of Arab nationalists led by Egypt's ruler Gamal Abdel Nasser and that this would be a major victory for the Soviet Union in the Cold War. None of those things happened and the American intervention in Beirut didn't really do much to prevent them from happening. It's part of a recurrent pattern of Americans panicking at unexpected developments in the Middle East.
0: In the book, you situate yourself. I'm almost tempted to say that it's a history come memoir, history with memoir. Uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about uh, your own presence in the area, uh, your family's presence at that time?
1: Sure. Uh, my father um, worked for the United Nations uh, for his career after serving in the Army in World War II. And in the... 1950s, we were first posted to East Jerusalem, uh, which was then part of Jordan. And then in 1957, we were posted to Beirut. Uh, Beirut in the 1950s was regarded as the Paris of the Middle East. It was the most charming place. It had the best restaurants. Uh, It had all the uh, uh, equities that you could want. You could go skiing in the morning and swimming in the afternoon. Uh, it was a lovely place i of course was only five years old so how much i remember of it directly myself and how much i remember from my parents telling me after the fact is hard to say but i do have some uh, quite vivid memories of actually being fired upon by snipers during the lebanese civil war the civil war was deadly serious and um after the marines landed uh, my mother and myself and my brother were evacuated uh, to Naples, Florida, uh, Naples, Italy, sorry. Uh, Naples, Italy, for a couple of months. My father had to stay, of course, because his job was even more important then.
0: When you get into the historical background to the crisis, it caught my eye that, uh, unlike uh, such writers as Wilbur Crane, Eveland, or Miles Copeland, you deprecate the idea that the CIA, was directly involved in the free officer's overthrow in Ju- July 1952 of the um, uh, dynasty of uh, King Farouk in Egypt. Uh, why is that? The CIA was
1: aware of what was going on in Egypt in 1952, but to say we pulled the strings behind the uh, mask, I think it exaggerates that role. Um, the United States uh, Central Intelligence Agency had come to the conclusion that Fruk was going to fall sooner or later on his own. Uh, it wanted to be in contact with the free officers that were going to replace him, but it didn't want to be responsible uh, and held responsible for what was going to happen. Egypt, after all, was still then very much in the British sphere of influence in the region. Uh, it wasn't quite a colony anymore, but it was substantially short of being independent state. Uh, the British had 60,000 or so troops stationed in the Canal Zone in 1952. Um, the British still hoped that Farouk would hang on and that they could continue to deal with him. So it would have been, I think, a step too far for the U.S. to remove a British uh, client state but they certainly knew that the change was coming to Egypt and they were quick to jump on the train once it left the station.
0: After warm beginnings, uh, the American relationship with uh, Gamal Nasser, the uh, uh, leader of Egypt, began to decline in the fall of 1955 and uh, became worse thereafter. Why was that? Well, there were a number of issues upon
1: which um, Nasser and the Eisenhower administration were coming at things from very different standpoints. Um, The United States in the 1950s was obsessed, understandably so, but obsessed with the Cold War. And in the Eisenhower administration, the Cold War was seen in very black and white terms. You were either with us or you were against us. Of course, in the 1950s, a third way was developing, the third world, countries like Egypt, Indonesia, India, that didn't want to be aligned with either camp. The Eisenhower administration, particularly Eisenhower's Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, was very uncomfortable with this kind of third way. As Egypt pursued it more and more, it led to more and more strains with the United States. Probably the tipping point was when Egypt went and purchased arms from a Soviet client state, the Czechoslovakia, substantially increasing uh, its military capabilities and really upsetting the uh, balance of arms and balance of power in the Middle East and in its favor. The Dulles's, John Foster Dulles and his brother Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA, saw this as Egypt moving into alignment with the Soviet Union, uh, and that led to the very quick downfall of what had been a a small bromance between the United States and Nasser in the early 1950s. Uh,
0: Was there not a um, plot or operation uh, CIA and British intelligence, SIS, I suppose, to overthrow Nasser, um, called uh, Operation Omega, in the spring of spring summer of 1956.
1: There were plots. I wouldn't say they ever got very far. Um, the British were particularly interested. Uh, once uh, Nasser had uh, made it clear that the British were going to be thrown out of Egypt, and they were in 1956. Um And when he decided to nationalize the Suez Canal, which was seen as the lifeline of the British Empire, uh, the British government was determined to get rid of them and engaged in a number of efforts, none of which really got off the ground. Um The CIA was kind of a silent co-partner in these. um, But I think the CIA had a better understanding that Nasser's position was pretty strong. Nasser was an incredibly charismatic figure. Uh, particularly in the 1950s when he was still young and vibrant uh, and he didn't have the baggage of the failure of the United Arab Republic, uh, which came in the early 1960s, and the war in Yemen, which drained Egypt of an enormous amount of its vitality uh in the 1960s uh, leading up to the 67 War. In the 50s, Nasser seemed to be the wave of the future. Um, and the CIA, I think, even when we began to see him as the wave of the wrong future, still saw him as a very charismatic figure, very hard to get rid of. In
0: 1956 occurs uh, in the summer and fall the so-called Suez Crisis. Why was that uh, event so important to your narrative? The Suez Crisis um,
1: also called the Tripartite Crisis, because uh, what happened was after the nationalization of the Suez Canal, the United Kingdom, France, and Israel, each for their own reasons, decided to try to get rid of Nasser. Uh, And the three of them invaded Egypt. Uh, Israelis invaded first, and then the British and French um, came in ostensibly to separate the combatants, but actually to seize the Suez Canal. All of this uh, conspiracy was done Uh, without uh, informing uh, President Eisenhower and the Eisenhower administration. And understandably, Eisenhower reacted to it uh, very, very strongly. He saw this as a return to imperialism um, and uh, a gigantic uh, propaganda victory for the Soviet Union. uh, And he moved quickly to force the British and French and Israelis uh, to withdraw. This further elevated Nasser's standing, of course. Here is Nasser not only standing up to one foreign foe, but he's standing up to the British and French, the two great imperial empires of the 19th and 20th century, and to his Israeli foe um, uh, across the border. Uh, His stature after 1956 uh, was just uh, through the roof uh, in the Arab world. Crowds everywhere were chanting his name, Uh, and calling for the replacement of their governments uh, with the United Arab Republic that would stretch in the views of its proponents from Morocco to Oman, from the ocean to the Gulf.
0: Just to clarify, wasn't wasn't it the case that, in in point of fact, uh, Nasser uh, nationalized the Suez Canal Company, which had the concession, I think, until 1968, Uh, to run the Suez Canal, but strictly speaking, the Suez Canal itself uh, was not nationalized because it was always an Egyptian part of Egypt since it's physically located in Egypt. That's
1: right. That's right. By taking over the company, um, Britain and France had the largest shares in the company, Uh, so they were the losers in the sense that, that they no longer were able to run the canal.
0: Now, in the aftermath of the Suez uh, Crisis comes the Eisenhower Doctrine, uh, which President Eisenhower announces in January 1957. Can you tell the audience a little bit about uh, what that consisted of and why was that important in terms of the further crisis in 1958?
1: Well, in the aftermath of uh, the Canal Crisis, uh, which occurred in late 1956, um, Eisenhower felt he needed to clarify America's position towards the Middle East um, and to explain to the American people why it was important. It's interesting because this is the first attempt by an American president to say our national interests are involved in the Middle East and we have vital national interests in the Middle East. He identified, of course, the one that's obvious to everyone, oil, that uh the Middle East, particularly the Persian Gulf, uh, is home to a huge basin of oil and natural gas, which is critical um, to the world economy. In the 1950s, it was particularly important uh, for European um, econ- economies, uh, not so important for the U.S., but since we're linked together, it was very important to that. Uh, he also identified it as important because it was home of the three great monotheistic religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And he argued that if the Soviet Union could take control of this part of the world, uh, it will then impose its atheistic values on the region. The whole thing is very much steeped in Cold War manners. Uh, Eisenhower didn't talk very much about the the, politics, the complicated politics of the Middle East and he did not identify the defense of Israel as one of America's vital interests in the region uh, which I don't think any American president since would have left that omission but Eisenhower left it out in 1957 the conclusion of his speech was that if the United States found that any of its allies in the region were endangered uh, by sedition or invasion the United States was prepared to come to their defense. And this, of course, would be what he invoked uh, in July 1958 when he sent the American troops into Beirut.
0: Can you tell the audience how the um, crisis, um, a series of crises going back, I suppose, to 1949 in Syria but intensifying in 1957, uh, in early 1958, contributed to the larger crisis of uh, uh, July 1958.
1: The uh, Syrian uh, state, as we know it now, um, is a much smaller state than Syria had been um, inside the Ottoman Empire up until 1918. Uh, Syria historically included what we call Syria today, but also Lebanon, uh Israel, Palestine, and Jordan. The truncated Syria of, of the 1940s uh, was very unsatisfactory for many Syrians. Many wanted to see either a greater Syria established or Syria become a part of a united Arab uh, state stretching from Morocco to Oman. There were a series of coups uh, in the 1940s, uh, particularly after Syria lost the uh, 1948 war with Israel. Uh, the CIA was heavily involved <coughs> in these coups. Uh, in the end, they produced more and more brittle, uh, regimes. And by the end of 1957, Syria's, uh, political stability was, was completely gone. Um, and what the Syrian elites did is they went to Nasser and asked Nasser to effectively take over the country and make Syria part of the United Arab Republic as it was called uh which would have its capital in Cairo uh and which Nasser would run uh they hoped that he would give them a lot of uh stake in actually running Syria itself uh, that hope turned out to be false and Nasser ruled the United Arab Republic uh like it was uh, his own personal uh country he was enormously popular in Syria, uh, and when he visited uh, Damascus shortly after the UAR was announced uh, to a wave of excitement across the Middle East, uh, hundreds of thousands of Syrians and tens of thousands of Lebanese came out to see him. The Lebanese crossed the border and, and embarked uh, to visit uh, Syrian cities where he addressed them, uh, demonstrating that his appeal went far beyond just Syria. And this contributed to the growing tensions in Lebanon, which would produce the civil war uh, in the summer of 1958.
0: Why did neither American or British uh, intelligence um, undercover uh, or uh, predict the overthrow of the Hashemite regime in Iraq in? July 1958?
1: That's a very good question. Um, it's particularly grievous intelligence failure for the British uh, because the Hashemite uh, kingdom in Iraq, uh, which by this point uh, was in federation with uh, Jordan as well, was Britain's most important ally uh, in the Arab world by far. Um, the British... Uh, had uh, groomed the uh, Hashemites to run Iraq since the end of World War I. Uh, I think they were blindsided because they uh, believed that the regime was widely popular when, in fact, it wasn't popular at all. Uh, This happens when you uh, become so close to a regime, you kind of lose perspective on it. In many ways, you could say the United States had the same problem um, two decades later uh, with the Shah in Iran. Uh, the U.S. didn't have as big a stake in Iraq, and I think to a certain extent kind of depended on the British to tell us what was going on in Iraq. But we, too, were completely surprised by the coup. And it's that wave of surprise, bordering on panic, that it leads to Eisenhower's decision to send the Marines into Iraq. Beirut literally the day after the government in Baghdad collapses. One other thing I should say about the coup, um, not only were we surprised that it happened, we didn't know anything about the people who were involved. Um, The the colonels who carried out the coup were a complete black box uh, to American and British intelligence. The coup did spur massive demonstrations in favor of Nasser in Baghdad and other Iraqi cities, and many of the tanks that were used in the coup had pictures uh, of Nasser displayed on them. So it was not an unreasonable proposition to think that there were Nasserites among the coup plotters. Uh, In fact, there were, but we just didn't know at that point how seriously uh, Nasser had uh, any role in the coup. Uh, We now know in retrospect Uh, that Nasser was as surprised uh, as the CIA and British intelligence. He hadn't known this coup was coming, and he knew nothing or very, very little about the colonels who carried it out.
0: Why didn't the British intervene militarily from their Air Force base outside of Baghdad the way they did in 1941? Was it the fact that... um, the king, the crown prince, as well as Nuri Saad, the prime minister, had all been killed almost immediately after the coup, and therefore the issue of British legitimacy in any such intervention?
1: Yes, uh, the the, the royal family uh, was decimated literally by mid-morning on the day of the coup, and the Iraqi army had wholeheartedly thrown itself in with the coup makers, so... Uh, Outside intervention, whether by the British or by the uh, Jordanians, the junior partner in the Hashemite Federation, uh, was obviously a non-starter within a few hours after the coup had taken place. And also a non-starter for the United States.
0: Yes, I think it isn't the case that the United States deprecated uh, moves um, uh, suggested that uh, either Iran or Turkey... Uh, which are all, which along with Iraq, were members of the Baghdad Pact, would intervene militarily.
1: Yes, uh, I think that the uh, Eisenhower, who after all uh, was the, the greatest American general of the 20th century, and, and knew much more about uh, military operations uh, than virtually anyone else, could see that moving into Iraq in the face of um, first of all, the Iraqi army, but secondly, the Iraqi population, um, would be a, a mission too far. Uh, we now know, having done exactly that in 2003, uh, how right Eisenhower was. Going into Baghdad uh, may be easy to do. Uh, getting out of Baghdad is very, very hard to do.
0: Uh, With that being the case, why did President Eisenhower choose to intervene uh, just a short time later in uh, the Lebanon?
1: Well, if you read his memoirs um, and you read the minutes of the National Security Council meeting on July 14th, um, first of all, there was this sense of panic that the coup in Baghdad was Egyptian-sponsored. And that it was going to be followed by the overthrow of the governments in Lebanon, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, all of which would join Nasser's United Arab Republic, and all of which would then, ipso facto, become part of the Soviet sphere of influence. Secondly, there was a sense that we had to, quote, do something. Um, What that something was, uh, was unclear. Um, We had a request from the Lebanese president, Camille Shamoun, uh, to come in and buck him up that, uh, he reaffirmed the morning of the coup. That was the easiest thing to do. We'd already had plans in place for America to intervene in Beirut, uh, and a co-partner mission by the British going into Jordan. So in the sense that We had to do something and do something quick. Uh, Lebanon was the easy alternative. Uh, We were already had the um, sixth fleet offshore. uh, And Eisenhower green lighted the mission uh, and said, go forward. Uh, The American ambassador on the scene uh, had cabled in that he didn't think there was any reason to panic uh, because of events in Lebanon uh, due to the Baghdad coup, uh, but his view was overruled, and the Eisenhower administration went forward um, It's interesting in the history of the Eisenhower presidency because Eisenhower as a whole um generally abhorred sending troops into combat um this was a This was the one time that he chose to go forward uh
0: although there in retrospect uh, perhaps even at the time the intervention appeared to be a bit farcical. American uh, forces landing on the beach uh, or beaches of, Beir- of Beirut uh, amid bikini-clad uh, young ladies and uh, concessionaires, etc. Uh, but um, how close to armed conflict were those troops uh, once they did uh, come ashore? Well,
1: the troops uh, definitely expected combat they landed expecting that they were going to be met by hostile fire. But you're right. There was a kind of comic opera element of the sunbathers having to run out of the way of the Marines and Lebanese vendors running down, trying to sell them cigarettes and Coca-Cola. As they began to leave the beaches and move into Beirut proper. It almost turned into a uh, disaster of uh, the Muslims, um, saw the American intervention as a deliberate attempt to keep Shamoun in power. Shamoon was a Christian, um, and they were prepared to fight. What saved the day was smart diplomacy by the American ambassador on the scene, uh, backed up by the generals and admirals who were leading the um, invasion, and the Lebanese Armed Forces Commander, General Shahab. And they came up with the fiction that the Lebanese army had invited the Americans to come in and that the Lebanese army was the, the Americans were the guests of the Lebanese army and that the Lebanese army would escort them around. This fiction, um, which held up for the most part, not completely. One American did die in this operation, um, allowed tempers to calm, uh, and allowed room for diplomacy to come in. And ironically, um, The American ambassador, backed up by Washington, uh, ends up being the facilitator of moving Shamoon out of power and replacing him with General Shahab as the president. In effect, uh, giving the Muslims um, and Nasser, too, exactly what they had wanted all along. Uh, That was smart diplomacy carried out by smart people on the scene and the Eisenhower administration was smart to let it move forward that way. Uh, Lebanon did not join the United Arab Republic, and Shahab was able to give uh, Lebanon another decade or so of relative peace and stability.
0: Subsequent to the American intervention was a British intervention in uh, Jordan. Um, How important to the crisis, in essence, petering out, was that uh, British intervention?
1: Symbolically important, um, after all, uh, King Hussein, then quite young, uh, was now the last surviving um, member of the Hashemite uh, dynasty. Uh, His position uh, was precarious. Uh, The CIA had uncovered a coup earlier in 1958 against him. Uh, That had been pretty much wrapped up. The British intervention, which was very small, a thousand a couple of thousand British paratroopers, um helped to, uh, solidify his position and perhaps even more helped to steady his nerves. Uh, the king had a bad case of, uh, nervous breakdown, if you want, uh, when he learned of his family members being butchered in Baghdad by the coup and more or less withdrew from the world for more than a week. Uh, the British intervention stiffened his spine and helped him to recover his position.
0: What um, are the what you characterize as the four central lessons to be learned uh, from the crisis? Well, by far the most
1: important is don't panic. In the Middle East, there are always unexpected developments. Um, you don't have to react to the first news. Wait, see what goes on. See if this really is as worst case as you think it is. Uh, secondly, you should really um, listen to your diplomats, uh, intelligence experts in the field. Uh, they probably have a better handle on what's going on uh, than people will have uh, back here in Washington. Even with the best analysts in the world, people in the field are probably going to be better informed than anyone else. Another is be wary of what your allies are promising and uh, interpreting events. Um, they often have their own interests at heart here uh, and not your interests. So important to listen to them, uh, but be very careful to recognize that their guidance and their advice is going to be stacked in favor of interests of their own.
0: Uh, and, uh, taking up that last point, one of the, um, uh, leitmotifs of the book is that, uh, two then American, uh, as well as today for that matter, uh, allies, uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and Israel both had, uh, different agendas than the Anglo American agenda in the crisis from basically from start to finish. Isn't that correct?
1: That's right. Um, the and, Saudis. Um, particularly, King. Uh, at that point, he was Crown Prince Faisal, but he was he was the one calling the shots in Saudi Arabia. Uh, were no friends of the Hashemites. Uh, had not been friends of the Hashemites. They'd fought the Hashemites for uh, decades. Uh, had no real interest in seeing King Hussein survive. Uh, wouldn't allow the United States to uh, bring oil from the Persian Gulf through Saudi airspace to Jordan. Uh, The Israelis were also ambivalent about King Hussein. Uh, The British in particular believed that the Israelis really wanted to see the king fall so that they could grab uh, the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Uh, The Israelis also were very difficult to secure air flight uh, openings um, for British and American aircraft uh, supporting the British presence in Jordan, and supporting the uh, Jordanian economy. In the end, the the Israelis agreed uh, because Eisenhower really put a lot of pressure on them and promised them that if they needed anything because of unexpected developments in the region, they could have them. Uh, In this case, uh, as you quite rightly point out, our two closest allies in the region really weren't on board with what our British partner and we were trying to do in Jordan.
0: If you wanted people to take one particular thing away from your book, what would it be? I think it's the notion that
1: the Middle East is always going to have unexpected developments that will often look very threatening. Usually, though, not always, but usually, the worst case is not the most likely case. And pausing to see how things develop. To develop better information about whatever the new surprise is, uh, is usually the right thing to do. Sometimes you don't have a choice. The attack of 9-11 is an obvious case. But most of the time, it's better to put the pause button on before you react.
0: Well, with that observation, uh, which I wholeheartedly agree with, I would like to thank you very much, Mr. Idell for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Mr. Rydell. Thank you. I thought that went very well. I thought Um, so too. and I enjoyed uh, both talking with you as well as reading the book. Uh, I learned a couple of things which I was not um, familiar with. And, uh, I would like to thank you again, uh, for, uh, this podcast.
1: It's my pleasure. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you again. Take care. Bye
0: bye.